Amen. It's a blessing to know that the future of the church is in good hands, that we have godly young people who want to be used and want to be different, and we celebrate that. Thank you, Miss Abby. At this time, the children will be dismissed to Children's Church to my left and to your right, so if there are any kids that want to go that way, uh, they are welcome to do so. I see Miss Amy waving over there. It is a blessing to have each of you with us today to be able to celebrate the Lord and His faithfulness. I want to start with actually a brief story. Back around 1980, a Wheaton College professor named Wayne Fickett wrote a short story about a fictitious head usher of an equally fictitious Baptist church in California. Those were times of recession and inflation fueled by runaway energy costs. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I think it sounds familiar to me. The usher owned an appliance store that struggled due to the poor economy. One Sunday as the head usher counted the offering after the morning service, he took a $100 bill to cover a bank overdraft for his company. During the next 12 months, he would embezzle over $7,000, a little bit at a time, to keep his personal finances afloat. To his family, to his church friends, the head usher presented a prosperous exterior. Inwardly, he was suffering horrible guilt because he knew how despicably he was acting and how he was increasingly powerless to stop the downward spiral of theft and deceit. Let me just stop real quick. I love the fact that our church has systems in place to keep something like that from happening. But this is actually a story that although it was fictitious in 1980, the reality is it has happened on many, many occasions. King David of Israel was a much more powerful man around 980 BC than the head usher was in 1980 AD. But his sin also started small and it took on a life of its own as it grew bigger and bigger. The head usher's sin affected his family and his church. However, when David, a royal figure, sinned, his sin affected an entire nation for generations. You know, we've been looking at King David for the past several weeks, and all appearances suggest that he was a great man. And in a manner, that is correct, he was a great man. He was an overachiever. He was described as a man after God's own heart. He was a conqueror, and he was clearly a man who had his way with people. But as everyone in here is probably aware, no person is perfect except Jesus Christ himself. Today our reading takes us to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I am loving reading through both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. If you have not been reading along with us, I want to encourage you to do so. This is stuff that Hollywood wishes they could come up with such good material. Today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it is a familiar story of David and Bathsheba. And it gives us the impression that David knew that his sin was wrong, but he somehow had to justify it in his own mind already. And before we are too quick to pass judgment on David, I suggest that our sin is not all that different from David's at times. 
on the one hand, we know the difference between right and wrong. Have you ever done something and immediately sensed that feeling of conviction? It's when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and calling you out and addressing the issue. You're filled with regret and shame. No doubt if you ignore the conviction long enough, you will probably get past the feeling of guilt, but you will still know that what you've been doing is wrong because the Spirit already made that clear to you. But it's not just the feeling of conviction. So often we justify in our minds why it is okay for us to do the things that we already know are wrong. Perhaps we're better than other people. Maybe in some way we deserve it. Maybe because we've already done a lot of good and it kind of outweighs all the bad that we're choosing to do. Perhaps we've decided that it's just not that big of a deal. Or perhaps we really just want what we want. And so we're going to do it. I do understand that there's probably more to sin than this. But generally speaking, sin is doing what you know to be wrong and often justifying it as being acceptable in our lives. Anyways, let's get to our passage. Again, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and David is already a successful king. He is loved by the people. And I just want to read one verse to get us started. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, honestly here, this verse seems so insignificant that you could probably skip right over it and not even realize that a problem has begun to appear. Apparently, much like today's culture, there were certain seasons for certain things. We never really think about it this way, but apparently one of those things was fighting. It's not clear the intent as to whether or not they were in attempting to expand their own kingdom or perhaps to repel other nations that were pressing in on them, but it appears that it was springtime and therefore it was time for us to go fight. To be more specific, it said at the time when kings go off to war, the king is the one who would go fight. I've already mentioned this, but David understood the expectations on being a king. He had commanded his troops on many occasions and had been incredibly successful at it. In fact, as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23, we find that David actually surrounded himself with some of the biggest losers the world could ever find. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in 2 Samuel 23, but it's a list of David's mighty men. If you were to look back at some of the things that these individuals did, it is incredible. But what is so amazing to me is these were people that other people would have rejected. These were individuals that were as rough around the edges as you could ever find. But David was so good at leading them, and they bought into who David was and what he was doing. David was a great commander. David experienced great success, and it's time for David to go out and fight, but David stays home. The passage says that he stayed in Jerusalem. 
Instead, we're told that he sends Joab out to lead the troops on his behalf. And there's a part of me that says Joab was a great choice for this role. In regard to the military, we know that Joab had already shown himself to be a skilled general. And throughout his life, he would reveal himself to be incredibly loyal to David. In fact, even in our passage today, you'll see that he is instructed to do something that will be detrimental to one of his own soldiers, and it's as if he doesn't even flinch because David's the one who told him to do it. He is that loyal to David. Now, he may have some character issues with vindictiveness and cruelty. He seemed to be a bit self-seeking at times, but he could lead the soldiers very well. But the issue is not whether or not Joab was well-equipped to lead the people. The issue is that at a time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. It should be noted that this act in and of itself is not sin. Nowhere in the Ten Commandments nor in the Levitical law is the king instructed to go out to war each spring. It's not a sin, but it is a compromise. But I also want you to realize that compromises tend to grow into very ugly things. Unchecked, they can balloon into sin and defeat, as we will see in the story of David. This can happen in the life of an individual and within the life of a church. In fact, in both cases, we must continually fight against it. But such a journey from compromise to sin is not something that usually happens overnight. It develops, it grows. In fact, there are other things that can happen along the way. Look at David's journey. He began with compromise, and compromise, again left unchecked, led to curiosity. Listen to verses 2 and 3. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, there are Two things that I want you to see. Actually, there'll probably be three. First, be careful not to blame Bathsheba in this story. The passage says that she is bathing, apparently, to where David could see her. Maybe this is somehow her fault. Actually, I don't believe that is the case. Remember that David was not even supposed to be there. David should have been off fighting alongside his soldiers. In fact, alongside Bathsheba's husband. But David was the one who chose to stay home. In addition, there were probably not too many high-rise apartments where others would have been able to look out and see her. It is likely that only the king's palace would have provided a vantage point where she would be visible. So don't blame Bathsheba for this story. Sometimes it is sure easy for us to blame everybody else for our sin, though, isn't it? It's so easy to look at everybody else and say, well, I wouldn't have done this except for what you did over here. It's so natural and so easy for us to blame everyone else for the sin that we choose to participate in. 
Second, it's not necessarily bad that David was curious. He saw a beautiful woman and he wanted to know who she was. I kind of picture him saying to his servant, wow, who is that lady? And suddenly the drool begins to fall. But it's the third thing that is the problem. It's not the curiosity. The issue is that David was more than curious. Due to a flawed heart, David had already made up his mind what he was going to do with Bathsheba. He masked it with curiosity. But from the very moment that he asked, who is that woman? He had every intention of becoming intimate with her. And I'll look at the verses that reveal that in just a few moments, but I want to go back to what I shared at the beginning. What causes an individual to fall into sin? It would seem that David has justified in his mind why it is okay for him to do this thing. Maybe he says to himself, but I'm the king. I can have anything that I want. I've done some great things. God has blessed me. What is your justification for sin? What is it that makes sin okay in your life? You say, well, it doesn't. Sin is not okay in my life. Then why are we allowing it? Far too many in the church are no different than those outside the church. Because sin has taken such a grip on our lives that it has become commonplace and normal. It ought to never be that way. What is it that has caused us to justify sin in our lives? I mentioned that David was more than curious. Beginning in verse 4, we see that David's curiosity will lead to a crumbled covenant between he and the Lord. Listen to it for a moment. Then David sent messengers to get her. So now he knows who she is. He knows that she has a husband. Her husband is a guy named Uriah the Hittite, which we'll talk about later, but he is actually one of the most trusted, loyal men in David's army. But it says, David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David asks who she is. He gets her name and the fact that she's married to Uriah. At this moment, the conversation should have ended. It's cool. You think she's beautiful? Nothing wrong with that. That's the curiosity thing. Nothing wrong with that. But she's married to another man. The conversation should be over. But it wasn't. Can you see how one compromise has already begun to become an out-of-control disaster? Had David gone off to war when kings go off to war, he wouldn't have been there to see her bathing, and he wouldn't have been able to pursue a sexual relationship with her, causing her to become pregnant. And with such sin also comes great baggage. Certainly there would be physical consequences to David's sin. A chapter later, we'll see that the child born out of this immoral relationship will actually die. But it could also be said that God's punishment would fall upon the entire nation of Israel. Verse 27 reveals that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. 
back under the leadership of Moses and Joshua. It had already been established that God would not tolerate such sin. God had made a covenant with Israel. He declared, you will be my people and I will be your God. Implicit within this covenant is that God will bless you, but also you will obey him. Well, David has broken the covenant. There would be consequences. In fact, there are always consequences to our sin. So often we feel like we got away with sin. Nobody knows what we did. It's just between us and the Lord, and we got away with it. There are always consequences to sin. Some of them may be very public, and everybody knows about it. Some are very private, but there are always consequences to sin. One consequence that is more personal is the fact that David likely carried around a huge weight of guilt and shame regarding what he had done. This is very well with the story of the head usher that I shared with you at the beginning. This weight of guilt and shame, knowing that what you're doing is wrong, nobody else knows about it, they're eventually probably going to find out, but until that day, you are the only one who's carrying that weight of guilt and shame. And it can be a hard journey when you know that you have allowed sin to take root in your life. He thought he was better than this. He knew that God had blessed him already. We're talking about David here. Why would he not just be satisfied already? And of course, the constant weight of conviction likely nagged at him long before God would send a prophet named Nathan to address his sin. On the outside, he looked like he had gotten away with it. Everything was good, and perhaps nobody else would know what had taken place. But on the inside, the personal remorse likely ate him alive. The idea that somehow he was better and more blessed than others, (laughs) the only thing he could probably think of is what a failure. But things would get worse. Verse 5, we already read it, reveals that this woman, Bathsheba, conceives a child. She is pregnant. Now what are we going to do to fix this problem? Well, the wheels start turning, and the verses that follow, in those verses, we'll see that David hatches a plan. He's got things worked out in his mind. Bathsheba's husband is one of the most loyal soldiers in David's army. I mentioned it earlier, but in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, there are actually 37 men that are listed, and these are defined as David's mighty men. Uriah the Hittite is one of the 37 people that are listed there. David calls Uriah to come home from the front lines. He pretends to be interested in what's happening on the battlefield. David doesn't care what's happening on the battlefield at that moment. Uriah gives his report, and then David says, Thanks, but since you're here, why don't you go enjoy some alone time with your wife? He is obviously hoping that Uriah will think that this child growing in his wife was actually Uriah's baby. But there's a problem. This soldier, Uriah, is so loyal and noble that he refuses to go and sleep with his wife. He basically has the mindset that it wouldn't be fair. 
my fellow soldiers are sacrificing by being away from their families and putting their own lives on the line. I am no better than they are. So he refuses to go and sleep with his wife. This actually happens two nights in a row. David tries to liquor him up one night and Uriah still refuses to yield. But what a contrast between David and Uriah. One is loyal and noble. The other is royal and he just stole your wife. And to make matters worse, he is about to do more than just steal your wife. Realizing that Uriah isn't going to take the bait, David orders that Uriah be sent back to the front lines. And then to, and then to make sure that Uriah doesn't become a problem, David orders that the troops withdraw, leaving Uriah on the front line by himself to be killed. In essence, David commits murder. By the way, when you look at David's mighty wars, it's actually an interesting idea. I almost wish that God would have given him such victory that day and he still got to come home. There are many times where you see David's mighty men killing five, 600 people all by themselves. What a great story that would have been. And then David still would have had to explain what was taking place back home. That's not what happens. David commits murder. And what began as a simple compromise balloons once more. Compromise turned into curiosity. Curiosity led to a crumbled covenant. And now this crumbled covenant leads to complete rebellion against God. Now, I know that all sin carries the same weight. So why would I refer to this as a complete rebellion against God? The wage of sin is death. We've already established that many times over. Yet I would imagine that most of us in here would also agree that at least according to a social order, murder is one of the worst things that a person could do, especially when you're talking about the victim being someone who loved you so much. It's betrayal. And suddenly David this man who displayed such incredible grace and humility all along the way seems to be nothing more than a jerk. I tried to find a better word to use there, one that was more tame and kind and gentle. But the truth is, that is who David is at this moment. David has just stolen the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers. And then had this loyal soldier killed simply because he wanted his wife for himself. The question arises, how does an individual move from such a glowing description to such an unkind description? The only thing that I can come up with is that within each of us, is the capacity to do good or evil. In David's case, he had demonstrated such godliness over and over again, yet this seemed so evil. The capacity was still there for him to do evil. You know, over the years, I've seen so many people who didn't live up to the standard of Christ. 
regrettably sometimes even among ministers. The result has often been disillusionment and doubt. If they couldn't remain faithful, then what makes me think that I can? Let me suggest to you that they could have also remained faithful, but they chose not to do so. Notice it's nobody else's fault. You can't blame somebody else because the sin took place in your life. It falls upon you. So often individuals have let their guard down. They allowed compromise to creep in and it blossomed into something far more destructive. I caution you today to be wary of compromise. Neither you nor I are good enough that we no longer have to worry about temptation. Satan is good at it. He will do everything that he can to discourage and to distract and to get us to where we no longer are pressing forward. We find ourselves drifting back. Satan is good at what he does. I am grateful for the foundation that so many of you have. You've been in the church. You've studied your Bible. You've served in various ministries. But these things do not guarantee that you will stay faithful in service to the Lord. You must choose every day to live for Christ. There is no room for compromise. What do you do when you have fallen short? When you wake up and you realize that the compromise has turned into blatant sin. I will tell you that when you find yourself in that position of complete rebellion against the Lord, you have basically two choices. You can go all in and resign yourself to failure. This would be like the person who is on a diet and realizes that they've already messed up for today, so they may as well get their money's worth. Some of y'all are laughing because you've said it or heard it. Then they wake up the next morning and realize that they not only didn't lose weight yesterday, but they gained 10 pounds along the way. You can do the same with sin. But you should know that the consequences only grow worse along the way. As with David, one compromise led to a sin that led to another sin that led to another. And what happens is all along the way, things get worse because he has chosen to be all in. I don't know how things would have turned out, but imagine David in his lustful heart calling her to come over and feeling this guilt and shame like, what am I doing? This is Uriah's wife. Why have I invited her over here? What would happen if at that very first moment when sin began to creep in, David had said, you know what, we're going to put a stop to this because it does not belong. I am blessed by God. I am God's chosen vessel. I will not allow this to take place. But David did not. And for far too many of us, we have allowed sin to take root. And what's happened is we've decided to go all in with sin. It is a foolish route, but it is one possible route. The other possible response is that complete rebellion ought to lead us to course correction. 
In 2 Samuel, we see that the Lord was displeased with David's actions. I shared it with you earlier. It's the very last verse in this chapter. The Lord will send a prophet in response to address the sin of David's life. I encourage you to read it as recorded there in chapter 12. But you need to know that the Lord was not okay with David remaining in his sin. And he's actually not okay with us remaining in our sin either. He has high expectations for you and for me. In his remorse and regret, David cries out to the Lord in a completely different book of the Bible. Psalm chapter 51, maybe you've heard this prayer. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is admitting that he has a sin problem that must be addressed. God's going to address it. God will not just ignore the sin of his people. He is asking that the Lord would show him grace and give him the strength to remain faithful. Later in the book of Revelation, it would be the church at Ephesus that had, in many ways, a similar problem. It had been a beacon of hope to the rest of the early church. They had incredible leadership. They became missionary-minded with all kinds of people surrendering their lives to Christ. It was the Apostle Paul who actually helped found that church. Yet something changed somewhere along the way. In Revelation 2.5, the Lord says to the church at Ephesus, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. They have gone from humble and faithful and pure to a compromised and sinful church, and God calls them to repent. I suggest to you today that there are many who will attend church this day, but who are in need of repentance. Take a moment and consider the height from which you have fallen. We've looked at multiple stories here in Scripture, individuals that we would look at and say, man, if anyone's going to succeed, it's going to be them. David had the blessing of God. He had the Spirit of God resting on him. He had a heart that was devoted to God at least most of the time. You had the church at Ephesus. Godly people. Paul started them. They were blessed. They were doing great things. But somewhere along the way, something changed. I think of Jesus and his 12 disciples. Jesus had 12 men that he poured into constantly. But only 11 of them come together after the crucifixion. Why? Because one of them was actually the betrayer, Judas. And that guy had everything. He was chosen by God to be one of the inner circle with Jesus. If anyone's going to succeed, it's going to be him, right? But it wasn't. The reality is it is very easy for those who have been a part of the church for a long time to slip in to something that's less than godly. You cannot allow that to happen. 
Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, be careful when you think you are standing strong. So easy for Satan to worm his way in, to take something that has so much potential and blessing and turn it into something incredibly ugly. We see it in David's story. We see it in Ephesus. We see it in Judas. I don't want to see it in us. It is likely that there are some in here today that come with great joy and peace and knowing that your heart is right with the Lord, and I celebrate that with you. But today, if you have allowed sin to work into your life, maybe because it started with a little compromise that seemed insignificant, but somewhere along the way it grew into something else, whatever it is that has led you to this point, I encourage you to pray the prayer of David. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, well, we are so grateful for your grace. We, we see how sin can work its way in as individuals, even as a church, and we don't want to be another statistic. We don't want to be like David. We don't want to be like the church at Ephesus. We, we don't want to be like Judas. We want to be people that are fully devoted to you with no room for compromise, no room for sin. Lord, some of us today have already allowed compromise to take root Some of us have already allowed that compromise to turn into sin. Father, we confess to you now where we have fallen short and we ask for your grace. We pray that you would grant us a willing spirit. Allow your spirit to dwell in us so that we might be sustained, so that we will not continue to go back to the same compromise and sin. Father, we are so grateful that you are a gracious God, that you did offer hope to David. You did offer hope to the church at Ephesus, and I pray that today you would offer hope to us. Father, forgive us for where we have sinned, and from this moment forward, I pray that you would empower us to walk victorious. Help us to choose every single day to live for you and not for ourselves. And we'll give you praise for what you accomplished through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to encourage you today, if you have allowed sin to remain in your life, I want you to know that there is grace that is available to you. And it is found solely in Jesus Christ. If you do not know that already, I need you to come see me before you leave. I would love to be able to talk with you and to be able to pray specifically with you. It is a blessing to have each of you with us. We're going to be continuing next week in this series through First and Second Samuel. I believe God still has a message for us from that book. Thank you for being with us this morning. If you would, as you leave, you have the opportunity to give. There are people that will be at the entrance and exits, and you can do so in that way. Thank you for being with us today. Go in peace.